transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. We're all moving towards a cleaner future, but how do we get there? What will we find out on the way? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the world of tomorrow. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy informed the American public that the United States would embark on a program to put the first man on the moon. But in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. We make this judgment affirmatively. It will be an entire nation. For all of us must work to put him there. The space race spawned a technological revolution that has shaped the world as we know it. Now, almost 60 years later, U.S. President Joe Biden has set an equally challenging and transformative goal of achieving net zero emissions in the U.S. power sector by 2035 and the broader economy by 2050. The president's move comes on the heels of Europe's highly ambitious net zero emission targets. The targets are undoubtedly bold. The question at hand, though, is can the U.S. meet its new moonshot mandate? It will take tremendous effort. All sectors of the energy industry will have to be transformed. This faces off against the technological limitations, policy design, market structures, and even the political and constitutional foundations of the United States, all of which may create roadblocks that can and likely will impede the pace of progress. Even so, efforts to meet Biden's ambitious goals will bring about major change in the U.S. markets that will help to lower global carbon emissions. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into today's conversation. It's truly my pleasure to introduce two dynamic guests who will help us better understand how realistic the target of 2035 is, what the U.S. needs to do to meet these ambitions, and how we're going to get there. First up, joining me today is Dr. Melissa Lott, the Director of Research at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Dr. Lott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, uh, Dr. Dennett, and please call me Melissa. (laughs) Excellent. You can can call me Liz. (laughs) Over your impressive 15-plus year career, you've been deeply involved with a range of aspects on energy, including analysis, economics, policy, and more. What have you been focusing on over the past few years? So my work largely focuses on energy transition. How do we maximize public health benefit? And there's a bunch of different aspects to this. But we really have reached a point um, where the rubber is meeting the road on the energy transition. So as we actually do it as we actually decarbonize our power sector, as we actually electrify our vehicles, all these things that have been part of modeling exercises for decades as they become reality, figuring out how we do it in a way that reduces inequities and improves public health around the world. Sounds fascinating. Also joining us today is Simon Flowers, our chief analyst and chairman at Wood Mackenzie. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I understand you have decades of experience across a breadth of commodities and sectors, including oil and gas, utilities and mining. Can you share exactly what your role is as a chief analyst and chairman? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Liz, and you, Melissa, too. So my role as chief analyst and chairman is is really twofold. Number one, I shape our thought leadership, uh, guide our research as to what topics and themes we should follow, you know, whether it's uh, traditional oil and gas or coal or, or metals production, or some of the newer things like renewables, the, the base metals needed for the energy transition, all these kind of things. And of course, COP26 is very much in our focus right now. It only happens in, a, in three weeks' time. Uh, what's going to happen there? 
sounds like quite the role. I, I know I'm looking forward to you sharing your expertise and opinions on the podcast and wrapping up each episode by offering us the last word. There's a lot of questions to talk about today, so let's go ahead and jump right into the deep end. Net zero by 2035 is the target. Melissa, how ready is the U.S. power sector to get there? It's a really great question. I mean, I think I don't think that any of us would dispute that 2035 is ambitious and it will take real commitment to get anywhere close to it. And we see this play out in the numbers. So the Energy Information Administration here in the U.S., they say that, you know, if we look at kind of currently what we're on the path to do with current commitments, we might expect to have mm, just under half of our electricity in 2035 coming from clean resources, zero carbon resources, um, not just renewables, but nuclear, et cetera. So if we want to go to 100%, that's going to be really challenging. And the challenge is not just about getting the technology out. It's not just about building a panel. It's actually getting that panel installed somewhere. It's, it's about figuring out all the, the hard and soft parts of this process, making sure that our markets are there to actually pay these resources, et cetera. So it's not just an engineering problem. It's much, much broader than that. Now, can we get there? Again, it'll take a level of commitment that we haven't shown so far. But if we do we can at least get past that maybe half that the AIA is saying we'll get to without some commitment. Simon, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I completely agree with Melissa. It's a super ambitious target. I, I think it's one of the most ambitious targets anywhere in the world. But look, I think there are some positives and negatives. I'd say the positive uh, is, is that the policy is really supportive for the industry, you know, extending uh, investment and production credits uh, is going to be a big help. And, and of course, renewables work now you want when, when, when i remember 20 years ago it was very hard getting renewables off the ground but they have come down massively in costs you know it's a classic case of industrial scaling and they are competitive with virtually any type of uh, generation there are though negatives because renewables are absolutely not the complete answer and we found with power outages and cold periods and periods of still weather how do we solve the backup problem. So batteries just aren't ready for that right now. Uh, many systems still have coal and gas, and yet we don't have carbon capture and storage ready yet. I know we'll talk about that later. So the backup thing to provide the flexibility to variability is a big unanswered question. So we can't hurtle straight into renewables and expect, well, that's us sorted. It's much more complicated than that. I'll say, Liz, here at the Center on Global Energy Policy, one of the big findings that we've published on more recently is about saying the different types of technologies we need for a complete solution. If the goal is 100%, you want a lot of variable renewables, wind and solar, absolutely, but you need long and short-term storage and those firm dispatchable power plants. Eliminate any one of those three buckets, the cost goes up, which is not something that people want to see on their end bills and not something that a lot of people can afford to see on their end bills. Absolutely. And I know that in reviewing the work that's been done, there's this analysis called the Wood-McKenzie Bay Scenario. It predicts the likelihood of achieving net zero by 2035. Simon, how far are we from net zero by 2035 in the base scenario? Yeah, quite a long way. So, you know, we, we know, as we talked about, that renewables work right now and they're going to go pretty grow pretty fast. You know, on our base case, we have renewables capacity in the US doubling by 2035. But that only takes us two thirds of the way there, which I think Melissa touched on already. So we, we're going to need an awful lot more. Uh, so so that's that's got to happen. The, the other thing is not we talked about not being just about renewables, but it, it's also it's also not just about uh, supply. So we, we electrification is a, is a big thing and that's going to bring tremendous efficiencies and we need to focus on demand side management and actually things like electric vehicles, 
and heating buildings through electricity will bring we think tremendous efficiencies. And so you might find that demand actually doesn't grow anything like as what it has done under a fossil fuel based economy, that these efficiencies mean that demand in the future, it will grow, of course, but is, is dampened by the efficiency gains that we get. Melissa, and you mentioned that you had some broadly similar findings to that. Is there anything else that you'd like to expand upon? No, just like to highlight this point about how important the electrification part of this component is. If we look at getting to a net zero world, not, not not just net zero power, but net zero across the entire economy, we really are looking at, to do it efficiently, electrifying a lot of things. And actually, the less we electrify, to what Simon was saying, the more things we will need to do and the more potentially power we'll need to produce. So while we may draw down the use of certain fuels in the power sector, I mean, the power sector is the backbone of this entire thing, and it's got to be strong, it's got to be flexible. And when we look at the investments that need to be made, just we need to make sure we're focusing on that and making sure it is the backbone we need. So we've got to understand what the demand side is going to do in the future. I completely agree, Simon. Let's get into this electrification a little bit more. Frequently, when I'm talking with my friends about the energy transition, personal transportation is put at the center, especially electric cars. President Biden's target is 50% EV adoption by 2035. The current trend line looks like it's going to fall short very short. I have to confess though, I'm a proud electric vehicle owner, mostly on the rapid acceleration as I'm trying to get on those Houston on-ramps and love being an early adopter of technology. So I think there are some added benefits, but that said, sales for the rest of the decade need to be 50% higher than they are currently. Melissa, what are your thoughts on how to accelerate EV adoption? I mean, a big key here, we often talk about the cost of vehicles and how the costs are coming down, but one key here is infrastructure and how are we building EV infrastructure to support the charging that we need. The United States is massive. Um, my family is from rural Texas, where, uh, you know, no offense, even a 200-mile range, will that get you there and back? No, you're going to have to figure things out along the way. And so I know that in April, the Biden administration signaled a number of different efforts uh, related to grants for charging stations, new funding for charge-related R&D, a whole host of things to try to accelerate this. But it's one of those, um, I often find myself thinking about Kevin Costner and Field of Dreams when I think about EVs, you know, build it, they will come. There is an element of that in this. And so... You know, outside of D.C., I will highlight that we have a number of state efforts going on. I think most recently there was that new MOU that was signed by governors across uh, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, I think it was, saying we're going to actually have these regional coalitions to try to move electrification, electric vehicles forward and to have the infrastructure and the networks that we need. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be done. And within the infrastructure, remember, behind that charger are wires to the power plants that are supplying the electricity. The wires aren't ready yet. We need to get them there. Now, taking a step back, Simon, I wanna I wanna get your view here. I know that doubling down on electric cars is has been identified as a key way to get to net zero by 2035. What are your views on some of the broader trade-offs in terms of broader sustainability, things like battery production, rare earth element mining, some of the things Melissa was saying about the wires and the infrastructure? How can we accelerate our journey to get there? Mm, it's, a, it's absolutely a brilliant point because EVs won't work without uh, batteries. And it plays into what Melissa was saying about the range anxiety and the, 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 the infrastructure. And yeah, I, I think the feeling is the feeling I have is that the, the, the world may have to hold its nose a bit for, for, for a decade or so because 
These batteries are coming from some of the, 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 the weakest uh, uh, ESG regulatory environments anywhere in the world. I mean, cobalt is mainly from uh, Democratic Republic of uh, Congo, where mining standards you know, leave something to be desired. So that, that is a massive concern. Of course, it, that, that, that same sort of issue ripples out over some of the other you know, key commodities like lithium and, and, and what have you. The, the, the second point, I think, which I think is a major one, is that much of that supply chain rests in, in China, not just cobalt, but lithium and um, other key transition, transition metals. And, and China has played a tremendous game here. Uh, and it's not a game. It's, uh, it's, de- it's deadly serious. You know, they, they've been very uh, fossil fuel dependent and uh, saw the opportunity with the energy transition to pivot towards um, you know, electric vehicles and other battery-based technologies. So you know, how, how the rest of the world accesses the batteries is, is is a big question mark. And, you know, maybe like any other commodity, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to support the policy, then we'll probably just have to pay up for it. I, I think that, that's likely to be the answer. So what we are seeing, you know, besides all that, we are seeing the, the battery costs trending down. And, you know, they're quite near to being competitive with ICE vehicles or internal combustion engines at the moment. But we're still probably two or three years away from it. And then the psychological issues, which Melissa touched upon, but what needs to tip us over because of this, get back to the timeline, you know, it's getting quite urgent, is we, 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 need, some, we need some tax breaks. So we need more vehicles uh, getting the tax breaks. Um, we need tax credits at the point of sale. We need incentives for an acquisition to last you know, 10 years or more. And we need to increase the incentives for buying one, which is limited at $7,500 at the moment. We need to increase that probably by about 50%. And that, that would seriously help. Curious to hear from you, Melissa, in your in your view, what these incentivizations you think would help drive the U.S. economy? Well, the one thing that I just would say at the end of it, Liz, with this and the incentivization is making sure that we're not just incentivizing things that already have some momentum, so like fleet vehicles and picking that up for companies. But when we're talking about net zero, that is a very clarifying target. And so we're not just talking about replacing every fleet vehicle in the country. We're talking about replacing every vehicle. And so what are the incentives that will actually make it so that low-income community members can actually be purchasing these vehicles, charging these vehicles, using these vehicles safely? We have to make sure that we're focusing on that. It's part of the reason why I enjoy these conversations about net zero, because we all have a very clear target in mind. And a lot of what needs to be done in terms of incentives comes just crystal clear as a result. I think it's really important, too, because we we probably have a bit of a first world view of this. Mm Absolutely. It's our default view, and I don't think it's a super point. No, absolutely. And in terms of working backwards from a target, having ambition is very important, but at the same time, ensuring that the U.S. can be a steward to the global community and help us get where we want to be as as a planet, I think, is an important thing not to lose sight of. That's it for the moment. We'll be back after this short break to talk all about hydrogen. Hi, I'm Nina Bedrick, a data analyst at Wood Mackenzie, and this is Making Waves. In each edition of the Horizons podcast, I'll shine the spotlight on those in the industry who are doing exceptional and revolutionary work. I'll be talking to the brightest talents in the energy sector, getting insight into their work and how they see the future of our industry. This week, I'm talking to Ben Hertz-Shargell, Global Head of Grid Edge at Wood Mackenzie. Ben, welcome. Tell us a little more about what you do. Pleasure to be here, Nina. So the Grid Edge team is focused on what are called grid edge technologies. So these are the technologies that customers and utilities use to basically manage the grid in, a, in the kind of new decentralized world that we find ourselves in. We 
research both markets, uh, underlying technologies, the kind of the key players. And we make sure that we are providing industry actors and regulators and policymakers with the kind of intelligence they need to make the right decisions. So that sounds like a ton of stuff. It's super interesting. What made you go to Grid Edge? It's a long story. I, you know, coming out of my PhD many years ago, I was looking for at the time a job in clean tech uh, or in clean energy generally, and I wasn't able to find something. And I ended up uh, taking a job in finance. But the entire time, from the minute I set foot in the door on Wall Street. I was looking for an opportunity to uh, to be in this industry because climate change, you know, back then really just resonated with me as it does today. And so I was probably the only guy on Wall Street really banging down the doors of utilities uh, looking for a job. And I ended up getting a position at actually a hardware startup. And that set me on a journey that I am on to this day. Um, I really see the power in a lot of these technologies that um, kind of uh, residential customers, businesses, and others are using to be involved in energy, uh, which is really having a kind of transformative effect on the sector. So it has been quite a ride so far. So how does the research that you do here at Woodmac contribute to the real world policymaking that we're seeing every day? I guess there are kind of direct and indirect ways. I would say some of the, the direct way is we put out reports that are kind of authoritative in um, in the outlook for certain key markets. Um, and those are often within specific distributed energy resource categories like microgrids and EV infrastructure and demand flexibility. And so um, our work is often cited in regulatory filings and in decisions made by um, key regulators, both at the state level, like the California Public Utility Commission and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC, which is kind of the powerful federal regulator. And so the work that we do and the reports that we put out are often cited in appreciating kind of the size and the scale of the market for these technologies. And so we really are directly affecting policymakers and making sure they understand the scale of what is coming and and the actions they need to take. And I would say on the kind of indirect side, by being an ear to the industry and speaking to all the stakeholders on the private side, within government and uh, on the kind of regulatory side, we are able to kind of see where the market's going and put out research that educates a lot of these policymakers on, and, and also some of the large corporates on what they need to be doing to kind of get an edge and to make sure that they're laying the groundwork for the next iteration of the energy sector. So when you're talking to all of these stakeholders, both public and private, what are the most important things that you think we can do as industry experts, maybe your team specifically, that can help them understand the meaningful change in the sector? I mean, I think there's a number of initiatives that are kind of key right now. And, you know, there, there, there is a role for private industry and there's a role for government. I think the role of government is playing out right now with some of the, the bills, you know, being put forth in Congress, both the infrastructure bill um, and the bill that would come through reconciliation. So I do think the government appreciates its role in providing funding and creating kind of federal incentive programs to help facilitate markets for electrification, including for buildings and EVs, as well as for renewable energy. And I would say kind of the private sector and utilities, it's really about sensing the, the commercial opportunities that they have to take part in this revolution. You know, customers are taking a role in energy that they never did before, whether it's through a smart thermostat on their wall or buying an EV. And there's a number of other ways as well. Everyone really has a role to kind of facilitate this kind of participation and to benefit from it. And that includes utilities. 
who are often the kind of uh, the customer's first kind of direct contact with this world. But also, um, you know, we're seeing all kinds of innovative offerings from companies from Sunrun to Ford who are bringing all kinds of opportunities to customers and finding value themselves. So talking about all of these players in the market and efficiently using the energy on the grid and people playing a role, can you tell us a little more about grid uh, digitization and why is it so critical for the energy transition process? So I guess the grid today is a, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily be visible to all people, but is a really different animal than it was many years ago, where it was generally this uh, giant analog machine. Um, but today there are kind of key changes um, that make the grid way more flexible and resilient and hopefully capable of dealing with the kind of changes that are, that are just happening each day. Some kind of key examples of this are what's called advanced metering infrastructure, or often just referred to as smart meters. So it used to be that you, you, know, you had a, uh, a meter on your wall that was just a dial that was recording how much energy you used and you know, you'd be billed for the, the, the difference from one month to the next. But in order to align your consumption with the actual cost to the grid, it makes a lot more sense for utilities to, to know what you are consuming on a, a 15 minute or an hourly basis. And so smart meters make that possible, but it's a tremendous amount of data. And there's other kind of important information that utilities can harvest from it as well, such as the voltage at your home, which you know, sounds kind of abstruse, but it's really critical in making sure that you're getting proper service and that there aren't issues when you're charging your EV or when you're, uh, maybe the solar panels on your roof are producing. There's just a number of other technologies that are creating new data streams for utilities. You know, there are distribution sensors that give them readings of very kind of high frequency, high resolution data across feeders in their territory um, and at substations. There's enterprise software that uh, utilities are using to leverage that kind of data and do analytics to predict either faults or the way that power needs to get rerouted on their network. So all of these require totally new kind of digital analytics-based solutions by both utilities and grid operators. And it's also worth mentioning that there are a whole host of other energy platforms that are involved. And I used to work at several of these vendors where it's a separate platform that is controlling and monitoring assets on the grid. And that platform needs to feed into the utility so that it can kind of be the ultimate brains of the operation to orchestrate all of these different um, resources. And so just the ability for this interoperability between utility systems and other software platforms is becoming increasingly critical and is you know, somewhat of a pain point across the industry to make sure that we can have maximal interplay between different platforms that are providing different values. I definitely can relate to a couple of things you've said, um, touching on the smart meters. Um, one of my roles here at Woodmac is looking at hourly load profiles that are published from the utilities. So I am hands on all of the data that you know we scrape from the utilities and looking at those profiles and you know, in ERCOT, for instance, you're getting 15-minute uh, interval data versus trying to get uh, data from, you know, NISO. So it's it's uh, very interesting to see how different it is and how accurate data helps us anticipate what our clients have already used in the past and predict what they're going to use in the future. Um, so it's a little overwhelming to get all these data points, but at the same time, knowing that it's necessary to understand the functionality and efficiency of the grid is, is definitely important. So going back to your role and your team with all of these technologies and everything in the industry is changing on a day-to-day -day basis, what is the best and most challenging part of your job? There's you know, lots, of, uh, lots of challenges and, and lots of interesting things too. 
I think kind of the, the modeling and forecasting that we do is, is both of those. You know, we need to take data ranging from publicly available data to um, information we get from across the industry by speaking to some of the key players, getting some of the, uh, with what they see and putting the whole thing together with policy drivers and, you know, the regulatory realities and coming up with a forecast that best represents our knowledge and expectation of a given market um, years into the future. And we, we do that as a, you know, across what McKenzie and our specifically our um, energy transition practice out to 2050 to kind of provide different scenarios based on kind of global temperature rise. And doing it out to 2050 is incredibly challenging because you need to anticipate what are kind of unknown unknowns and, um, you know, put yourself in the shoes of someone living out in that distant future. What will the policy landscape look like? What will the commercial landscape technology? It's a very different world. And so modeling out that far is difficult. And I think just in general, trying to collect a picture from across the industry is difficult because actors come from very different perspectives and they see their kind of window of the world and have their view. And you need to kind of treat it as a puzzle where you're putting all these pieces together to put together a kind of coherent view of the, of the market as a whole. And that is what we attempt to share with our clients to give them the most objective and comprehensive view of the landscape that they're operating in. Ben, thanks so much for joining us and catch you next time on Making Waves. Thanks so much, Nina. Are you guys still there? Well, let's return to the conversation and delve into hydrogen. In that vein, another hot topic are alternative energy sources and one that's been gaining a lot of publicity in the past few years is hydrogen. Melissa, what role do you see hydrogen having in this net zero roadmap? So some of my colleagues often describe hydrogen as a Swiss army knife because it has a lot of different potential you know, uses and purposes. Uh, when we look at decarbonizing power, which we were talking about earlier, it's one of those could become a seasonal storage resource, could become some flexibility, could be firm dispatchable power. It's got a lot of different applications. So if we can figure out how to make zero carbon hydrogen with renewables or nuclear or other zero carbon technologies, this could be a potential storage option for bridging some of the big problems that we see as we go to that 100% zero carbon future. And it can be a tool that can we can use, as we know, for those harder to abate sectors. Because again, net zero is a net zero economy. Got a lot of things to figure out. But we're not there yet. We still need progress. The costs aren't there. We're not where we need to be in terms of the infrastructure to support it, et cetera. From your view, Simon, how can we accelerate getting there with hydrogen? Money. <laughs> you know, that, that solves many, many things. Um, but it, it's going to take time. And we see hydrogen as absolutely critical. It's, it's going to it's going to eliminate, if we're going to get to net zero, we need it to eliminate 10 to 15% of emissions. And uh, But but it's going to take time, as Melissa says. It's going to be a, part of the second wave of, of um, decarbonization, really kicking off in the 2030s. And, and that's principally to do with costs. And, and I think it, itself is going to come in, in different waves. And, and, and in the US, there's tremendous potential for blue hydrogen to come in because there's so much gas here. You use that gas and, and, and you, you capture the carbon, which you know, it, it isn't quite ready itself yet, but it, it's in small scale, it can happen. And then eventually, as Mr. says, we'll, we'll, we'll get to green hydrogen. Um, and, and again, the US has got good resource. I mean, it's not the greatest resource in the world, uh, but there's wind offshore and onshore There's in, in certain pockets. There is also some solar. Green hydrogen, which is the nirvana, if you like. I mean, that's going to be, uh, do all the things that Melissa says, maybe even more that we do in 
not yet. That really starts to get cost competitive sometime around the mid 2030s. So it's it's a wee while yet before I think we get huge industrial scale um, hydrogen, but it's going to be enormously exciting when it does kick in. Absolutely. And for our listeners, can you quickly unpack the difference between blue and green hydrogen? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so blue hydrogen is made from uh, natural gas and is quite a common byproduct uh, in, in refineries and petrochemical plants at the moment. So you, you create the hydrogen and you just store the, the carbon. And then on, on green hydrogen, it's a, an electrolyzing process, which uses, as Melissa says, it uses uh, renewables. So any place that's got tons of wind or solar is, and, and particularly if it's near demand centers, that's great. But actually, uh, liquid hydrogen is very transportable. So you know, any hydrogen, whether it's blue or green, but the, the large scale, the large volumes that can come from green hydrogen in a sunny place like the Middle East or somewhere like Australia, or even some states in, in the US could be tremendously effective green hydrogen producers in future. Hydrogen normally gets a bad rap because it can be explosive if not handled correctly. Are there systems in place to make sure that hydrogen is a safe fuel source? Look, it's, it's like any combustible gas. Uh, it's a trum- energy dense. That's the beauty of it. So you need less of it to produce the same amount of power. And look, you know, I, I, I imagine that, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90 years ago when, you know, coal gas was in the systems, none of us remember that. Your know, natural gas came in, the same reservations were there. So yeah, I think the good thing is these days that the, um, you know, the regulations, the policies and stuff, uh, the frameworks are there to make sure that we don't make too many, slip on too many banana skins when it comes into the system. We've got, as I said, we've got 10 or 15 years before it's starting being piped into people's homes for their boilers to to heat the homes and heat their water and run their air conditioning. Which really, if we look at where we are now in 2035, it's it's not that far. So my last question for you both, uh, Simon, I'm actually going to start with you on this one, is Joe Biden has his work cut out for him. What would you say are the three highest priority things he needs to do in terms of attracting investment or more broadly to help us get to net zero by 2035? Thank you for giving me first shout at this. Bad luck, Melissa. Um, (laughs) So I'd say three things. First, uh, your transmission. So it's the boring part of everything we've talked about now, but... Um, This resilience thing is aided a great deal by connecting different power markets and networks. So lots of interstate uh, transmission and even within state if if that's necessary. The second is a a fund for carbon capture and storage. Yeah, carbon capture and storage has been around a long time, but it does not work. You know, there there are some technical things and there's also big commercial things. Needs quite a high carbon price. So a fund to accelerate investment in that to prove the case as it were commercially and i think the last thing is energy storage i mean that's i mentioned nirvana before so i won't say it again but um that is really if we can get energy storage long duration and short duration so to help the quote in quotes centralized systems but also behind the meter stuff uh, more domestics of energy storage i think will be a massive breakthrough towards net zero all right, Melissa, those were three great priorities. I'm curious to see what you have. I think I won by going second because my priorities, I'm like, oh, three? How about 10? And so at least Simon's covered a few of them, which is fantastic. So check those off. No, um, so I'd say I'll take it high and get specific on the last one. So at a high level, 
we know this, but clear objectives and a technology agnostic approach, uh, making sure the Biden administration gets things in place and aren't going to expire in three and a half years or seven and a half years, whatever it is. This is really key to setting up an environment where we say, okay, we know what direction we're going. Now let everybody who needs to be in this ecosystem, so technology creators, investors across the board, we know we're going north, south, east, west, whatever the direction is, it's clear. And so making sure that those objectives are set up and not being too restrictive on the technologies that are allowed to play. The goal is net zero. So if you can support that end goal, have at it. See how you can support a low-cost, reliable system in the future. The second one is about investing in those technologies you need to fix the tail. So those technologies that we need to have in place sooner rather than later, we, time is running out to actually fix the last bits of emissions. So we know what to do with the first bits as we decarbonize the bulk of the power system. Lots more renewables, keeping zero carbon resources already have online, building out storage where we can because storage does make sense in the system. But making sure we have all those technologies in place for that last, I'd say about 10% of the system. And then I'm, I've got to say it again because it just can't be said enough times. I agree with you completely, Simon. Building out the grid, investing in the grid to make sure it can be that flexible backbone of what we need so it can support all the demand and supply side activities that are going to be happening and that we want to have happen to accelerate progress towards an affordable net zero future. We have to do it. There's no getting around it. And that includes clarifying a lot around transmission and how we build out these longer lines and improve the resources we have. This is part of why at the Center on Global Energy Policy, we wrote a report coming that came out last December about what we can do with existing authorities to improve our transmission grid, not just new things being passed in Congress, though, of course, those things help or they can help. It's a lot to do. We need everyone on deck to help out seems like we definitely have our work cut out for us, but I, I really want to thank you both for coming on the show today. It's been a great conversation about where we're headed and where that aspirational North Star is by 2035. Thanks so much for a great conversation, you two. Um, thank you to Dr. Melissa Lott, Director of Research at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and to Simon Flowers, the Chief Analyst and Chairman at Wood McKenzie. Thanks, Liz. I really enjoyed the chat. Simon, it was great having this conversation today. Me too, Melissa and Liz. Been great fun. All major economies are trying to identify the pathway to net zero emissions. The US has a similar level of climate ambition as the European Union, a global leader in climate policy. The Biden administration has made a giant leap in its proposals at home, but it must make another abroad. The reality is there's significant, significant barriers standing in the way of achieving net zero, such as supply chains for raw materials, the geopolitics of energy, and global energy prices changing radically across the world. The Biden administration will need to work with other global leaders to define policies that accelerate decarbonization. Setting near-term policies for low-carbon technology innovation, creating carbon market policies, and addressing energy subsidies will help. That said, the U.S. is likely to fall short of President Biden's aspirations. Yet, by setting these goals, he has put the U.S. back in a negotiating table with a chance to influence global climate policy at COP26 in November. Thank you for joining us for our debut edition of Horizons. I really hope you enjoy the show and we've got lots more to come. As part of each episode, we'll leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Over to you, Simon. What we find over the last few weeks is that more countries, more states, more industry associations, more companies are all committing to net zero ambition, which is absolutely great. 
The reason, of course, is that we're only a few weeks away from COP26. It's taking place near where I'm talking from, in Glasgow, in Scotland, in those first two weeks in November. And here, it's not just about Joe Biden's plan, although the US plan is absolutely instrumental in making something happen. All countries have to come together and start talking about how we reduce emissions. You know, what we do about demand management, what we do about the new technologies, whether it's in the power sector, uh, in electric vehicles, and all the other hydrogen carbon capture and storage. That's got to come together. Ultimately, we want to see a carbon price. That is a key trigger for making sure we get on a path of two degrees or lower uh, by 2050. That's what we really want. And what COP26 is all about is not about policy. We're starting to hear a lot about policy. We need action. We need action on all these things to make sure the world gets on the right pathway. Thank you.